Welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. This week's guest hails from the city of Montreal, Quebec, Canada, which is on the unceded territory of the Teotihuacan of the Kani-in-Kehaka Mohawk Nation. Kani-in-Kehaka is known as a gathering place for many First Nations, including member nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abinaki, and Anishinaabe. In this episode, I speak with Canadian producer extraordinaire Ida Finchman. During our conversation, we chat the nuts, bolts, and knowledge needed to be a great international co-production partner, her work with the documentary organization Canada, and the specific steps the organization took to ease some of the stress of the pandemic for Canadian filmmakers. We also chat about some of her most recent work on the films such as Stray, Layla at the Bridge, and The Gig is Up, and her ongoing support of Palestinian filmmakers. For this episode, Ina chose a masterpiece written by her fellow Canadian, Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah. Regarding the meaning of the song, Leonard Cohen said, this world is full of conflicts and full of things that cannot be reconciled. But there are moments when we can reconcile and embrace the whole mess. And that's what I mean by hallelujah. The song explains that many kinds of hallelujahs do exist and all the perfect and broken hallelujahs have equal value. It's desire to affirm my faith in life, not in some formal religious way, but with enthusiasm and with emotion. When one looks at Ina's body work, it is clear that documentary is a medium she has chosen to find meaning and reconcile the many contradictions that we face in life. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in July, 2021. When Renelle and I were going over the notes um, last night for this interview, we were talking about how we kind of had our last supper with you and, and Claire. And that was like the before you well, escaped back to Canada, before things, before the border shut down. I always called that the last supper. And then we kind of had our first supper together too, in a way. Exactly. It's very poetic. It is. It is. It is. So like the beginning, the beginning of the pandemic and the, well, I'm not going to call it the ending of the pandemic, but the continuation of the pandemic, because we are still um, not out of it. I mean, we all remember where we were in the last few days, like when, you know, March 2020, when everything shut down, right. like what did you do? Mm -hmm. And where did you go? And who were you with? I remember all of that vividly. Me too. Me too. Like, I remember my last workout class. I remember like the last person I hugged, you know? <laughs> and, um, but also like just that feeling of knowing like, wow, this is really, this is really serious. Yeah. I remember leaving LA and um, I had gone to Orange Theory on the Friday. And I know I say that because I know you go there thinking, okay, maybe I'll go to another class on Sunday. And then by Sunday, everything had shut down. And then on Monday, I was leaving on the red eye that night. I had lunch with a friend in Hollywood because West Hollywood, because they still had things open. I walked across the street to uh, Book Soup because I said, you know what? I don't want to order all my books online. I want to give these guys some business before they close. I bought like half a dozen books, put them in my suitcase and, you know, by the time I flew out that night, everything had shut down in LA. I did a spinning class. It was Sunday, March 15th. And by the 16th, that was it. 
but it's interesting because a lot a lot of people I've been seeing um, a lot of people kind of think that only because and this is maybe I don't know how it is in Canada but here in the U.S. because like the responses has been so disparate here in the United States and because like certain states are kind of the governors of certain states are stupid <laughs> so like Florida and um and Texas and they haven't really they're still resistant for whatever reason because you know they don't believe in science but a lot of people have been kind of in the U.S. have been speculating that we're going to kind of get into this new normal of COVID of like wearing masks all the time because so many of our citizens are just so resistant that COVID is real and there are all these conspiracy theories do you find it that way in in Canada because I, I feel like at least from what I've heard from the Canadian side is your main issue is us having trouble getting access to the vaccine. Yeah, well, that's changed. I mean, you know, we're now in July and we actually statistically or proportionately have more vaccinated Canadians than there are vaccinated Americans. It's just because we don't have huge swaths of the country who refuse to get vaccinated. And that's what's happening in the U.S., so I want to just know, because uh, we've known each other for a, a few years now, but I just want to know, like, how did you get into documentary? Like, what was your entryway? I started my career as a journalist, and I had taken one documentary course in college, and I always loved documentary. And, you know, what's so funny is that, you know, my first job was with the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in television, and I was sent to Labrador, which is a very remote part of Canada near Newfoundland. And there was literally nothing to do. There was, I lived on an army base and the only things that were there were a place called Happy Valley Goose Bay, where there was a big army base, the CBC station and indigenous people. That was the community. So there was really very little for me to do other than going to steak night at the US mess hall on Tuesday nights. Wait, so it was a U, it was a US military base. It was US okay. German Canadian. It was crazy. Like I've never seen anything like this. So what I would do is a friend of mine and I like we were like I had one friend there and we say okay, what are we going to do? So we ordered documentaries from the National Film Board of Canada and they'd be sent up to us there and we would go to the library and put up a screen and watch films. So I always had a love of documentary and Coming from, you know, being a journalist, I did a lot of radio documentaries, which they were called at that time, which are now called podcasts, and which were very popular for public broadcasters to do. Even, you know, NPR did a lot of, at that point, radio docs, BBC, CBC. I love the format. And, um, but I also worked in television. So, I worked for the CBC for a few years and then said, you know what, I don't want to work for a large corporation. I'm going to go out on my own. And I joined a very small production company and actually directed my first and produced my first documentary very, very early in my career. I went to the former Soviet Union and did a film for the CBC about a Yiddish theater group whose, um, who the, whose founder had come from Russia and she was returning home for the first time in many, many years. And this was you know, the beginning of Glasnost and Perestroika and, and, you know, it was crazy. Like we traveled, myself and the camera person traveled, you know, to Ukraine, to St. Petersburg, to Moscow. It was amazing. So was this when um, Gorbachev was premier? 
Yeah, it, it, like it had just, just started. So it was really a very interesting time to be there. So that's how I got started in documentary. And, and you know, I, I directed a second film myself and then decided I don't want to be a director. I want to be a producer. And, you know, before documentary was cool and trendy, you know, and, you know, I don't even want to say lucrative, but people can make a living doing it. I did it. And, you know, I look back on my career and I say, wow, you know, 30 something years ago, I was committed to making documentary and people were like, that's so sweet. You're making documentaries. That's so, they made it sound like it was a hobby. Right. Even though, you know, people who worked in public television, there was always a tradition of documentary films and the National Film Board of Canada, of course, which is one of the largest institutions, public producers worldwide that did and continues to do, you know, landmark films. So that's how I started in documentary. And I guess it's sort of the, the quote unquote journalistic side of me that wanted to tell stories and understand the world through the eyes of real people that really, you know, propelled me to, to work in documentary film. What are some of the, the biggest changes you've seen in documentary from like when you first started like to now? When I first started in documentary, it was really, you know, people who worked in public television and public media that wanted to make documentary film, right? It was um, prior to CNN, it was prior, I mean, I'm sure HBO came, but they weren't even doing that. Many no, yeah, they, that they were point. just, they were just movies. So the biggest change and, and, you know, even from an audience point of view, I think people always appreciated documentaries that were part of you know, current affairs shows, for example, like, you know, I grew up in the area of 60 minutes where you'd sit with your family on a Sunday night, your parents, your siblings, and you watch 60 minutes. Now, were they documentaries? Not in the way we understand them, but they were certainly a deeper dive into understanding the world we live in through real people and their stories. So, you know, I think the biggest change, of course, is, you know, the proliferation of the documentary genre, how it's evolved into, you know, a mul multiple kinds of storytelling as well. Like there's no cookie cutter documentary. And of course, the streaming services, you know, television, premium television that embraced documentary like HBO, eventually Showtime, CNN that, you know, started doing, you know, heart with news and current affairs and also now embraces the documentary. And I also think, you know, our audiences worldwide truly appreciate this form of storytelling, which I have to say when I started, you know, I think people who saw documentary really did, but they were few and far between. You know, there was this idea that documentary equals education. So, you know, if you go back and look at who was distributing documentaries, it was the educational distributors. There's a very well-known one in San Francisco, one in New York, and of course, the National Film Board of Canada. The idea was to get these films into schools, community screenings, all of that. So the biggest change is the audience and the access right. and how we define a documentary as well, which I think is really, really critical. That's interesting that you talk about how the original audiences were schools and the and the community because it now seems like filmmakers are struggling or are having to fight to get back to that, particularly the community screenings. 
when they when they were when, when they're working out there, particularly if they're working with a larger streamer or a larger distributor for their distribution deals and like having to negotiate that. Well, you know, what I find really interesting is how the pandemic has in some ways forced us to reimagine how we're getting films to audiences. So for example, I, I worked on this film Stray, directed by Elizabeth Lowe. And and you know, a film I'm very, very proud of. And I was um, the executive producer of, of the movie. You know, I was very involved aside from some of the final fundraising and finishing, but also really in the distribution. And Magnolia Dogwoof was our sales agent and our UK distributor, and they sold the film to Magnolia in the US. And what fascinated me about what Magnolia did, and I have to say, I feel they did a magnificent job, is they pivoted and they realized, you know what? Ultimately, there are niche audiences who will be interested in these film, in this film. And how do we capitalize on this moment in time where people are watching movies at home? And they brought on a fantastic impact producer, uh, 360 Communications, and they devised a campaign which was all about reaching out to community groups. And, and interested parties and activist groups. And so X screening in LA would be hosted by this group and their members would buy tickets. And it was extremely, extremely effective. And honestly, I do believe that we're going back to that because you know, there's so much content out there. How do you engage audiences who are really gonna care about your content? I think they were very smart. And in the context, especially of not showing the film in very many theaters and relying on online screenings via theaters, by the way, I think they really were able to create a campaign that made a lot of sense. So in, in a weird way, I think this, you know, unless you're making, you know, a big deal with a Netflix or another streamer, I think this going back to the grassroots has been very effective for a lot of films. Right, because I mean, that's one thing, conversation I have with filmmakers, particularly who are kind of like new to the grant writing process and who really don't understand like the concept of audience. Cause a lot of people, they're new to the grant writing process when you, in the audience section, they say, well, everybody wants to see my film. And that's like, no. Because also, if you think about it, like you're not really interested in seeing every big Hollywood blockbuster that comes out there. Like it just, that just doesn't appeal to you, right? There's certain film, films you want to see, certain ones you don't, but you really have to go in like knowing who your, who your audience is, but also the various circles of audiences. So I just wanted to ask about the impact campaign for Stray, because like Stray was one of the films that Lisa Hasco and I through um, Film Independent um, selected for, uh, it, it may have been one of our last Donkey Club screenings, <laughs> but I just wanted to ask, so what was the impact came in? Was it like focusing on like the dog specifically in Turkey? But oh, for those of us, for the people, our audience members who don't know, can you just tell us a little bit what Straight is about? Yeah, so Stray is, is about stray dogs in Turkey and, the, and we follow, you know, and their relationships with the humans that they encounter versus the other way around, many films that are about humans and, oh yeah, they're animals. This is really from the point of view of three dogs who navigate the streets of Turkey, meet young refugees, and it's a very visually stunning, um, immersive film about 
from the point of view of these dogs, these stray dogs, and showing that, you know, in a country like Turkey, unlike in many parts of the world, there is a, a real respect for stray animals. You know, people don't just say, oh, they're strays, we're not gonna have anything to do with them. They're part of the fabric of society. I was initially kind of describing uh, stray as the, the, the dog version of Keddy, because, but, but Keddy is very, I think it's, it puts equal weight on the relationships between the humans and the cats, but Stray is definitely from the dogs I've eaten, but also um, I had the pleasure of doing the Q&A for the Doggy Club for Stray, and we, got, we really got into the sound design and how they really tried to uh, create a sound design that was like to, to give we humans a sense of how dogs hear things. So like you are in, you are immersed in this world in all these various layers. And it's just, it's just beautifully done. So what was the impact campaign focused on? So the impact campaign was really about engaging animal rights uh, organizations, shelters, SPCAs into the, that was the impact campaign, selling them tickets, creating events. Elizabeth the, Lowe, the director did a number of Q and A's. And again, everything was virtual. Course. Right, because it was you know, right about the top COVID. But it was also interesting the timing because with I know in here in the U.S. there was a push for um, people to adopt just because of the crisis that was happening, and they wanted to minimize the number of workers who were working in shelters. They were it's really a push for people to adopt and foster animals. Exactly. So you know, it was less about adopting stray animals, but it was more about respecting you know the lot the lives of these these pets and. You know, we did a few screenings where you could, you know, less in the United States, but we did a few screenings where you could bring your your pets, like in the UK, you could bring your dog to the screening. So listen, I just want to tell you, every time I play Stray on my very large desktop, my dog, Dale, comes in and he goes nuts. Like he's talking to the screen and twirling around and very excited. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's so great. That's awesome. <laughs> TV for dogs, like literally. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so cool. All right. So I wanted to ask you about your um, your production company name, Intuitive Pictures. How did you come up with that? What was inspiration for that? Well, you know what? I, I you know, I've had a very long career. Um, I don't even want to say how old I am, but I will. Um, <laughs> and and like I look back in my career and and what, you know, the times when I was the happiest and the times when I, I don't even like to use the word struggle, but had challenges. And I feel that when I didn't trust my intuition about who I was working with, why I was making a film, you know, why this was important, why I should tell this story, it backfires on you, you know, and, and, you know, I think our intuition, you know, there, you know, people say, oh, how did you know to make this film? Or how did you know to hire this director? And I think you have to learn to trust your, your own intuition. And it's, it's something that I think um, over the years, I've realized that I have very good intuition when it comes to who to work with, what stories to tell, why I should be investing all this time in a film versus one film versus another. And I think, you know, there's no science to it. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about the work we do. You know, it, it's, it's not like you can say, you know, I need, I mean, this being said, you know, some of our streamers are, are, are very scientifically focused and algorithmically focused. 
and the data is really important. And I, and I don't want to discount that at all. But I think as a producer, you have to learn to trust yourself and, and to trust your experience. And I think this is a business, strangely enough, that doesn't respect experience sometimes and doesn't respect women's experience a lot of the time. And um, I don't take it for granted. I think experience and intuition that evolves over time is really um, key to success and to long sustainability and longevity in what we do. So I want definitely want you to speak more on the lack of respect for experience, specifically women's experience. Please elaborate. Well, I mean, look, I've, I've reached an age and a level of experience in my career where I think if I was a guy, I'd be told, oh my God, you're like a figurehead in the community. Mm, okay. And, and, and I, I believe that. And, I, and, I, and, I, and, and this isn't sour grapes. I just think that, you know, there's a certain, um, I don't want to say it's a lack of respect, but unease with women who are bringing a lot to the table meaning years and years of knowledge, experience, success and mistakes made. And I don't think we honor that in our community. I think we're often looking for the new, the best, the brightest. Those are the ones who, you know, get the, some of the grants, some, and, and you know, some, those are the ones who people go, wow, you know, look at her or look at him. And I think, especially as a woman, it's tough. You're seen as out of date, not as not as mature, you know. And I'm, I'm I don't want to name names, but you know, I look at some male, especially directors, and I go, "Oh my God, he has not made a good film in a decade," but people still revere him. And if a woman was to be in the same position, they'd go, "She hasn't made a good film. She shouldn't make another film." Yeah, but the bar is significantly higher, and I think that's is the same for women in the film industry across the board. You know, like when you see like women, you know, fictional women filmmakers who like um, Julie Dash and the woman who made Real Women Have Curves, you know, who like, you know, who made phenomenal films, but they don't get the accolades or the, or not even just the accolades, but they may get the accolades, but they don't get the opportunities. And um, one thing I noticed too, when I was, um, doing some research with um, well-known filmmakers for what would eventually become the enterprise grant where I used to work. I was tasked with talking to filmmakers to see who, ha who had done journalistic films to see like what they would like ideally to be as part of a grant. So it's kind of an informal survey. And the well-known male filmmakers who I've talked with, all of them had agents. And this is, that was the first time I'd even heard about a documentary filmmaker getting an agent. Whereas the well-known female filmmakers, all who had like the same amount of accolades and awards and, like, and, and nominations didn't have agents, but also had primary work as well as a spouse or a partner kind of to support them in their work. Whereas that was not the case for the male filmmakers. Like they were, it was completely sustainable. Whereas a lot of women filmmakers I talked with were, were also, also worked as journalists and also worked as like 
a lot of them were educators, you know, professors at colleges. It was really stark. And like, I know that's shifting a little bit because I have a friend of mine who's a young woman, young documentary filmmaker who's coming up, who has an agent right now because um, a lot of the agencies in Hollywood are, try are trying to get in on the documentary world. It is it's a much higher bar for women that women have to raise up to. You know, I'm never asked to come and teach at the Sundance Institute. And some of my colleagues who are literally 15 to 20 years younger than me and male are seen as the experienced filmmakers, right? Or experienced producers. And I don't take it personally, but there is a question as to why we're not recognized for the years and years of work that we do. We're the heavy lifters. I mean, I hate to say it. I'm involved in a project now with some fantastic people. I'm the heavy lifter because I know what to do. I've done it. I've made the mistakes and I, you know, like, and I have the experience. I, you know, and, and again, like we're always learning. Every situation is, is different. I don't want to say I know everything because I don't, but you know, when do we get to a point where it's not just about the next hot young thing? I hate to use that term or about who's trendy, but really about, you know, who's, who's survived and lived a sustainable life and career and learned from it and, and you know, has, has some knowledge and wisdom to impart. Right, and because it also it makes me think about like all the money that's been poured into the issue of sustainability in this field. <laughs> um, and, but how there's an interest in, in talking about sustainability but there seems to be a lack of interest in giving people specific information on how to be sustainable or even like celebrating those filmmakers who have been sustainable. So it's really, it's really, it's a conundrum. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I think you'll meet some producers like me who just, you know, not despite, but with our experience, what makes us, what excites us about working in this business is working with new talent and is about pushing the medium and not being afraid to push to push our directors and ourselves to do work that's innovative and interesting and you know calls into question many assumptions and that's what keeps me going is that every project has its unique you know assets and unique predicament and i embrace it every time well, I, I, I've had the pleasure of going to Hot Docs many, many times, and you were, you were kind of everywhere. You were either always <laughs> like, you're either like pitching at the big forum and, and you're, or take in taking meetings for a different film <laughs> or that film, or maybe two, and then something that you've, um, you're screening something as well. So often, yes. yeah, you're, you're like doing these, these like trifecta roles, you know, so this is really, you are, you are out and about. I am, I have to say, and I'm still very excited about the work that I do. I, you know, people say, oh, like, are you going to retire in 10 years? I'm like, I don't think about retirement. No, because no, if, if you, if you love what you do, then it really doesn't, well, I guess most of the time it doesn't feel like work. Sometimes it can feel like work, but you know, but also this is a career that you could keep going. You don't have to retire as a filmmaker. No, no, certainly not. Certainly not. 
All right, so I'm gonna get into the film that we first met on, another Docu Club alum, um, Layla at the Bridge, directed by Elizabeth Mirzahi and her and her husband. And I, I didn't I don't want to mispronounce what's her husband's name? I don't want to mispronounce it. Gulliston. Gulliston, yes. And they actually live here in LA. So how did how did you um become aware of that project? Well, you know, it was one of these really fortuitous situations where a very good friend of mine living in LA at the time called me up and said, Hey, there's this project, you know, they've been struggling to raise money for many years. It's pretty much all shot. Um, they've been selected to hot dogs, deal makers. They really need, you know, a producer. They're just, you know, they've been working with all kinds of people, editors and gotten a bit of money here and a bit of money there. And, why don't you go meet them? And so I went to their apartment in Hollywood and Alyssa had like, I think her daughter Miriam at that point was like literally a month old. Like baby Mary and I like hung out a lot at getting real and now she's like five or six. It's like, yeah, what? exactly, yeah. exactly. So she's sitting there holding her baby and she shows me her trailer and it's clearly a very interesting film. And I started to ask her questions and I said, you know, and what about this? And what about that? She says, yeah, yeah, I have that footage. I have that. And I looked at her, I said, I'm very happy to come on board to help you raise money, but we have to recut this trailer because it's really not capturing what this the incredible film that you've shot. And um, they had worked with an editor, a very well-known editor and things didn't work out with him. And, you know, sometimes people just don't communicate properly. I mean, I think that's what happens and it's just not a, a right fit. So Alyssa and I sat down for like a few hours and she did the editing and I just said, what if, let's move things around in this trailer. Let's, you know, tell this story that reflects what you have. And then we went to hot dogs together and I sold the film to many places like all over Europe you know eventually to NHK mm -hmm. um, got another them another got another grant for them uh, through Tribeca I mean it was amazing brought on a, a really good Canadian editor a wonderful woman by the name of Andrea Enriquez who worked with Elizabeth and Gulistan mostly Elizabeth cutting the film and she came to LA for six weeks I think it was then Alyssa came to Montreal for about a month and then we got into CPH dogs and hot dogs and Locarno and the film had an amazing festival life and we had a, a you know a sales a, a distributor who sold it to a few places it was a it was a hard sell why was it a hard sell well it was a hard sell because it wasn't in English and in the United States it's very very difficult to sell a film that's not in English English. That's interesting that that's that's still a barrier. I mean, but maybe hopefully that shifted some. I think it has, but because this was a few years, few years ago. ago, right? Uh, and just to kind of backtrack a little bit, tell us about what Layla um, at the Bridge is about. Layla is this amazing woman in Kabul, who, as you can imagine, because of the quantity of of opium in the country, there's a major problem with addiction, and part of the issue with addiction is. Even if people get off of drugs, then they, there's no work. And, and, you know, how do you lead a, 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 a productive life if you can't even afford to do so? So Layla created a, an addiction center for these addicts um, and a restaurant where they could work at 
once they'd gone through her program and it was based on the 12-step program. So it was based on that. And her brother, who also works at the shelter, had gone through this program very successfully. So the film follows Layla and like her efforts to keep this incredible organization alive, despite the fact that nobody in the government understands what she's doing. Nobody wants to fund her. And also her relationships with, with these men and a few women who she's basically literally pulls from underneath this bridge, very well-known bridge in Kabul, and brings them into her, under her wings. So Alyssa and Gulistan followed her for a few years and some of the people she was treating. And that's the result of this film. So it's really quite extraordinary, the trust and the access they had to, to Layla and her entourage. And, and Layla is, she's like a complex character as well, because if I remember correctly, there are scenes in the film where like she's with her, her, with her family and who are, am I remembering that correctly? And they are yeah, there yeah, and like she kind of like question, not necessarily questioning what she, the work that she does, but I think it's, it's something that comes up in a lot of films about women who are like, who are activists. Um, I think I mean, there was something, something that came up in the film, in Dolores, the film about Dolores Huerta, about these women who are so devoted to these causes that sometimes their family may be like, feel like slighted in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really um, a question of, um, you know, Layla's daughter and son live with her mother, her mother-in-law, but not in Afghanistan in Iran. So in one moment in the film, her daughter comes to visit her. And it's very moving because her daughter sees that Layla is not just a mother to her, but she's really a mother to all of these addicts who, you know, so this is the complexity of her life. Like, has she, you know, where, she, where have her priorities lie? Right. Which I think is um, something that I mean, on a micro, on a, on a micro level, kind of speaks to the struggles of like women who engage in like any kind of work, you know, exactly. like family versus exactly. work, and like how finding. Whereas like men aren't called to like make choices. They're they're not called to make those choices, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, she came to Hot Dogs for the screening. Oh, she did! Oh my yeah. goodness, I didn't realize that. Oh, wow. And we had a little benefit for her. And then um, she came to Locarno and that was pretty remarkable because they did something fantastic. They had, they screened the film. Then anyone who wanted to come to a Q&A with Layla and a few other people, they actually invited them to this restaurant very close to the cinema where everyone had a, you know, a box lunch and could just sit there and eat and listen to Layla and the people on stage. It was really quite something. So she, she, you know, so she had some good experiences with the film itself. I want to get into the whole conversation of, of co-productions because in the U.S., um, as a lot of people know, there we don't have any formal co-production treaties with like any countries, whereas it's co-production treaties with, you know, Canada and with European countries and also with some Asian countries are, are pretty much the norm. So um, I want to ask you, like, what are the, some of the differences between, because these treaties aren't in place here in the U.S., what are some of the, the differences in working in Canada in the U.S. or with, like, European-based filmmakers? 
Well, I mean, one of the biggest differences is, I mean, and, and of course, this was a response to the fact that we had this behemoth, you know, south of us called the United States who could afford to make, you know, 5 million films when we could afford to make 500, that we needed to set up a structure that kind of ensured cultural sovereignty in Canada, meaning that our cultural industries would be protected, our artists would be protected, that they would have access to funding and a voice on the, on the world stage. And many European and other countries felt the same way. And how do we, you know, the notion of collaboration and finding an infrastructure for these co-productions has been part of our, the history of our industry for you know, many, many years. So we have treaties, official co-production treaties with practically every country in Europe, with you know, a few countries in the Middle East, countries in Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Some are used more than others, of course, because you know, there's cultural compatibility and da 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 da. But this has existed for a long time to allow us to bring together creators and production teams and support each other's work. So it's very advantageous in the sense that, you know, money that's, you know, designated in Canada in the context of an international co-production can be used with that other country to build a budget and a creative structure that is a lot more robust. Right. So um, how does that come into play at, when you're trying to determine like what your what your role is on a project? I mean, I know you're prime, you work primarily as producer and EP on projects, but as far as like the contracts are laid out and I mean, I don't even know if, if you want to go into like how money is distributed, like how, how, all, how, well, it's, that a, it's a very, it's a, I mean, a co-production is a very simple form, formula. I mean, it's not simple, but the formula is quite simple. You have a, an overall budget and let's say the overall budget is, you know, a million dollars, right? And, you know, the producers from both sides of the, and it could be three producers, but, you know, let's say for this, these purposes, it's a French producer and a Canadian producer. You look at the overall budget and you say, okay, you know, I can bring 600,000 and I can bring 400,000 Canadian, you know, because in Canada we can get, you know, the CBC is committed and the Canada Media Fund comes in with that and we're going to apply to SODEC, the Quebec funding agency and Rogers documentary fund. And then on the, on the French side, they say, well, you know, Arte is going to put in this and then we'll get the CNC. So you figure that out in terms of, you know, what the budget can be, what the, what the spend is going to be on either side, you know, who's going to pay for what. And then there are rules, right? Like if you're, if it's, if it's, a you know, you have to have, what are called key creatives from both countries. And they have to be reflective of what the budgets, the, the budget split. So, you know, you can't, for example, you know, and people often come to me and I'm always like, okay, I have to explain this to you. You can't do this. You cannot have your director, your writer, your cinematographer, your editor, all in one country. And they just say, here, take the composer if you want me to bring money to the table. So it's often a negotiation and, you know, a, an effort to understand how this could work, both financially and creatively. So at what point do you have those conversations around the specifics on like who and what country is going to be doing what role? Well, when you decide to move forward in a project. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. And I'd rather do this sooner rather than later. So there's no misunderstanding. You know, you can't decide to move forward with the project until like I can say, hey, by the way, I can bring X amount of money to the table. Because I think what often happens is, you know, and I've learned the hard way that, you know, you have to be realistic. You can't just say, hey, I'm going to do a co-production with this. You know, I'm going to get involved in this project. if You can't sell it in your own territory. Right, right. Because I've, I've found that particularly a lot of um, filmmakers in the U.S., particularly uh, like newer filmmakers or filmmakers who may be working on their second or, or third features, um, even when they're like in the beginning stages when in their development, sometimes they're like one person operations, you know, um, and um, and particularly if a lot of people on the working on the first feature, they're doing everything. So um, and may not know how to um, reach out to like people in other countries to have the conversation about potential co-production opportunities. Yeah. So um, how would you? Um, like, how would you, what would you advise a U.S. filmmaker who needs, uh, who has a, has a great project, but also needs um, help, not only with, with funding, but also with, like, crewing up to approach um, someone like yourself or, or, or an entity in Europe? The challenge with U.S. filmmakers is you do not have treaties with any other countries. So, you know, we often have to think of creative ways to bring, you know, financing to American films. So Layla at the Bridge, um, we figured out a way in creating, you know, a company that me as a, a majority Canadian owner, you know, could, you know, have the majority position so it could qualify as a Canadian production and then make sure that our editor, our composer, our, all of our post-production was done in Canada. So it would qualify us for tax credits and you know, have a minimum number of points to qualify. But you know, my approach in, in films now is, listen, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't work. So I have another project I'm involved with now where um, we wanted to avail ourselves of what are called the service tax credits which are tax credits in Canada that are based on money being spent in Canada and labor being used in Canada, which allow us, you know, in this case of a $1.4 million budget to get $200,000 in these tax credits. So, you know, again, we had to create a different structure. The film is not Canadian, but we can avail ourselves of these tax credits. And every, you know, you know we need a minimal amount of, you know, Canadian, labor slash talent and spend for it to qualify for most of our funds. You know, there's only one fund in Canada that doesn't allow us to have a non-Canadian key creative involved, but every other fund allows a certain level of flexibility. But also I'm just thinking that's where someone of your experience comes in because you know all those rules and ins and outs and what exactly. what, what, what Exa- you could get where. Yeah. Exactly. And like, you know, many Americans, you know, especially ones with a certain reputation, are pre-selling their films to Arte in, in Europe or some of the other broadcasters, which is fine too. You don't have to do a co-production. You know, the advantage of a, a treaty co-production you know, is that for, let's say, a French producer, 
the film is then considered French. So they can, you know, get certain funding in France, but it's not that much funding sometimes, you know, it's, it might be, you know, $50,000. So you don't really need that right. in all projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you feel like the co-production treaties, particularly in Canada, have been really instrumental in helping make documentary film as a career sustainable? For me, it has, because it's allowed me to not just rely on one funding system and, you know, also have multiple projects going on at the same time. Um, so how many are you working on right now? It depends on what you mean by working on, because I have about five, four in distribution, okay. a number in development, and probably five in production. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll call it, let's say 15. Yes. <laughs> let's say 15. <laughs> You spent time with uh, Miss Rennell in Palestine um, a, a few years back. Um, she went there to do her um, uh, uh, one of her "Here's What Really Happens," and you were there as well. And I'm, I'm just going to read this. Uh, you were there as part. Well, you were both there, invited by Ramallah Docs, and as part of Palestine C- Cinema Days. And Rennell wanted me to ask you about the Wanted 18. So The Wanted 18 is a film that I produced probably about five years ago with a a filmmaker. I I actually discovered it at the very first Ramallah doc um, with a filmmaker by the name of Amir Shomali, a Palestinian who still lives in Ramallah and is a very good friend and collaborator. And he had had this idea to make a short film about these animated cows. And then I was there and Jean Pelletier from Radio-Canada was there and someone from Arte and we all said, wow, this could be a feature. So I brought on a writer who eventually co-directed the film with Amir. And um, it's a story of um, during the first Intifada, there were a group of Palestinian activists who decided that the only way to really, I mean, they were pacifists, right? And the only way to really, you know, show what they were about was to be self-sufficient. So they created and built their own dairy farm in Palestine. And the Israeli military commander in the area decided to shut it down. So they went into hiding with the cows and continued to make milk and dairy products for the next year or so. And um, the film itself is told from the point of view of, you know, a documentary, you know, interviews with these amazing activists X number of years later, and the animated cows who ended up in the middle of the first intifada. So it was, you know, it's, it's it's an amazing film and Amer is a wonderful director and we're working on another project right now called Theft of Fire, which we pitched at CPH Docs and then at Hot Docs and at Kumra. And um, we actually um, pitched it a bit at, at um, when Rennell was in Palestine as well. But the film, uh, The Watch 18, had a great success. It premiered at TIFF and then it went on to many festivals, won a prize at Michael Moore's Festival in Traverse City. And it was and... at the, the Bansky Museum too. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's a, a film I'm very proud of because I feel that it's a film that tells a you know, it tells the story from an authentic point of view. And I think, you know, many of the films about the region have either been made by Israelis and are some are excellent films. And, you know, I, I produced with Hila Medallia, the Oslo Diaries, and I'm extremely proud of that as well. But this is a real, you know, real Palestinian perspective, point of view, sense of humor, sensibility. And we need more of that. You know, I, I really believe 
that we need more of that. Ranelle and I were chatting um, yesterday and I got the documentary um, via archival research and I still do that on the side because I, well, because I'm a nerd and I just love looking up stuff and it's cheaper than getting like a paying for another master's degree because I have three of them. So I can like really get in depth in something. But she was talking about the issue of archival um, for Palestinian filmmakers because of the situation there that a lot of times there's not a lot of archival or a lot of the archival is destroyed and how they turn to like innovative um, techniques like using animation and things like claymation in order to help like tell those aspects of the story. Exactly. And I, and I think that, um, you know, like, how do we tell the story from the point of view of these, of, I mean, the cows were so innocent, right? They ended up in the middle of somebody else's mess. And that's what was so interesting to try to push that envelope and, and, you know, really try to understand what it was like at that time from the point of view of an innocent bystander and the absurdity. And that's what I loved about Amir's approach is, you know, this, and I think it's, you see this and, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in Ramallah and very close with Amir and his family, this kind of absurdity of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you that because uh, you are a Jewish woman. Yes, I am. Yes. Um, so, and, you know, particularly there's, well, in the news right now, um, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but there's been a lot in the news right now about the BDS movement and, you know, Ben and Jerry's and in the United States there are all these laws um, basically that want to penalize businesses that are part of the BDS, BDS movement, the boycott, divest um, and sanction movement. Uh, but I just want to kind of like ask you about like um, about you being a Jewish woman, like working with these Palestinian filmmakers, because like that, that relationship is so it's so wrought, to say the least. Listen, you know, I mean, I think it's a very complex relationship. I've made many films with Israelis. I've made, you know, this film with Amir and hopefully our next film together. And that's what I appreciate is the complexity of the points of view. You know, I just produced, a co-produced a film called Blue Box by a young Israeli filmmaker. It's her first feature and it's the story of her great grandfather who was one of the founders of the state of Israel through the Jewish National Fund and he kept a 5,000 page diary and it's really her kind of coming to terms with this legacy of, you know, a father, a great grandfather who essentially was part of the removal of many Arab communities and, and going in and purchasing land but she tells it not just through her own eyes, but through the eyes of multiple generations of her family who have different perspectives on what all this means. And it's not an easy film to watch. It wasn't an easy film to make, but that's what intrigued me about getting involved with it. Because I don't think the situation is black or white. I don't think it's about saying that, you know, the Palestinians are great and the Israelis are bad. I think there's a very complicated history, a very unfortunate history. And, you know, I also feel on a very basic level, you know, I'm very close with, as I said before, Amir and his family have spent a lot of time with them, have been to like, you know, graduation ceremonies. And I feel like, you know, with my Jewish friends and family who are a bit more to the right, who, you know, experience what I experience, just getting to know people. And I know it sounds very facile and banal, but it's the truth. Mm -hmm. They would understand, mm -hmm. hey, you know, we're kind of all in this together. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I've had the, the pleasure of doing some um, outreach work with the um, Hartley Impact um, Media Lab out of the Auburn Seminary. 
and um, I was speaking to a filmmaker um, who did this project. He's working on a feature project called um, Iranian Hillbilly. And uh, like his father is from Iran and his mother is from the Ozarks and he was raised in the Ozarks. We were talking about how his project actually shifted the views of some of his like white family members towards Iranians, particularly who were those who were like supporters of the Orange Menace, who were like all about bombing Iran. And he was just telling you, I have family there. You know, he, he talked to them about this movie and he said, I have family there. And when you're talking about, you know, bombing, you know, you're bombing Iran, you're talking about, you know, bombing my family. And like, he's been able, because of this project, it's a short right now and he's going to be turning into a feature. He's been able to have these like nuanced conversations within his family about like their opinions and, and their views. I remember the first time I became aware of the whole Palestine-Israeli situation, it was, this is like back in the eighties. And I remember watching an episode of Nightline and this is when Ted Koppel was still doing it. They went to, they were in Israel or the Palestinian territories. I can't remember exactly what, but they had the two people that were featured were a Palestinian mother who, whose son had been killed and a Jewish mother whose son had been killed. They were both speaking from the place of such, uh, of their pain and their grief of that. And I could tell like Koppel was trying to, he was working, he was trying to get them to kind of see how they were similar in their grief. You know, I can't imagine the thought of like lo losing a child, especially losing a child in, in war. Cause I mean, essentially that's what it is, it, it's war. At the end of it, there was no, they couldn't see each other. They couldn't see each other. And it really made me aware of how deep this is, how deep this is. Yeah, how deep this is. But have you, the filmmakers you work with in Palestine, like question like why you work on Israelis films and like vice versa, like has that question ever come up? No, because honestly, mm -hmm. like most of my Israeli colleagues, 99% are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. And my Palestinian filmmakers, you know, have seen the kinds of films I've made with Israel, like the Oslo Diaries, and they really like the perspectives and appreciate the perspectives of those films. But at the same time, you know, when, you know, after the Wanted 18 was, or when we were at TIFF with the Wanted 18, the Jerusalem Film Festival was begging me to show the film there mm, and mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. And my, I knew that we couldn't, you know, my Palestinian colleagues said, no, we can't do this we can't show the film in Israel. And it was fine. Like, what was the, the reasoning behind that? Well, I mean, it's it's very basic. They don't, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. because of, of the way, the situation between Israel and the Palestinians. Right. They don't want to recognize. It's deep. It's very deep. It's very deep. It's very deep. You know, Amir and I are still working together on a pretty major mm -hmm. documentary right now, as I mentioned before. Tell us what it's about. It's kind of a hybrid film. The fictional side is a, a, a Palestinian artist decides to reclaim some of the Palestinian art and archaeology that's been taken over the years from by soldiers and others who've been in the territories. And um, the documentary side is really about some of the, the, the looting that has happened. And, you know, some of the most important questions we're asking today about, you know, who does this belong to, you know, when all of this stuff ends up in museums. And I think it's, you know, it's not just... Palestinian archaeology and art that's ending up in different places, but it's it's something that's happening everywhere in the world. Yeah, because there's been a lot in the news, I would say the past two or three weeks about museums returning 
items to to people like all around the world. Like I think that recently happened to um, the U.S. returned some stuff to Iraq, and um, there's been a particularly here in the U.S. Um, like museums are returning returning things to Native American communities and Indigenous communities. So now I want to ask you, talk to you Anya, about your work with the um, Documentary Association of Canada, because I know you are on the board. And um, I'm going to just ask you, first of all, what you do. And then I had some specific questions around some of the initiatives that the Documentary Association of Canada did, did around like COVID as well. But like, what do you do? Well, tell us what the Documentary Association of Canada is. So the Documentary Association is essentially, first and foremost, an advocacy organization on behalf of documentary filmmakers, producers, directors, craftspeople across Canada. We're a national organization. We have chapters across the country. We have chapter in Quebec, in Ontario, in British Columbia, Atlanta, Canada, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, not Saskatchewan, and Alberta. So we represent the country and the filmmakers and, and, and you know, on the local level, our chapters tend to do a lot of local programming. On the national level, we're first and foremost an advocacy organization. I'm the chair of the board of the Doc Association of Canada. I started actually pretty much when the pandemic started, which is kind of scary. And um, I have another year left in my term. Okay. And it, but it's, it's a two year term? It's a two year term. Two year yes. term. Two -year term yes. Yeah. And, and that is of the national association. The reason why I brought them up, because I remember early on when the pandemic hit, um, um, Doc Associate of Canada did a series of webinars geared toward filmmakers who were or who were supported by them as well as filmmakers who were interested in getting support around them. But they had all the, the Canadian funders on. I was only able to be on one of these calls because you know it was like crazy that that you know crazy around that time. But it, the really amazing thing was that they were these funders were giving uh, basically giving an overview of like how they were how they were changing because of the pandemic and how they were, you know, not shifting. So, you know, they say, okay, you know, if you want to apply for development funding, you can still apply for development funding. Filmmakers were able to ask questions, but also like how they could use funds, like if they had received funds for production, you know, and because production was halted, like how they could use, how they could use those funds. And what I thought was like really great about that was because there was this infrastructure there and this uniformity to kind of answer these questions. Whereas the contrast here in the United States, because we don't have like a main organization like that, I remember I was fielding a lot of questions from U.S. filmmakers across like the gamut of things. You know, I mean, there were situations where funders here in the U.S. were very being very communicative and talking to filmmakers and letting them know, you know, because okay, you've halted production, but we recognize that you may need money to live on, so it's okay to use those funds to to, to live on. Some. Filmmakers were ghosted by their funders. There were issues around insurance, you know, issues around things in regards to like festivals, because some festivals were going to be honoring premiere status. Some were saying like, well, if you had a premiere at this festival, but um, but then that festival didn't go. And that was the case in the early days because of South by Southwest, that was the first festival that got shut down because of the pandemic. If you had a premiere there, we can't give you a premiere here, even though we may be screening your film here. Um, whereas there seemed to be in Canada, there's there was this more uniformity around that. And I think it's because of this infrastructure was there. So I just wanted to um, kind of just ask you about, about some of those, some of those differences, because I felt like 
there was, at least from what I could see, there are more resources, um, actually more answers and specific answers for Canadian filmmakers than there were for US based filmmakers. Well, you know, I don't think it was so much that there were more answers. It was, I think it was twofold. I mean, the executive director at the time, Michelle Van Busicom, and I decided that, you know, normally the Documentary Association of Canada on a national level, we do advocacy. We lobby the government, we lobby, you know, the funding agencies, we lobby broadcasters to make sure the documentary has an important place in our ecosystem. But we felt for the first time that as a national organization, we had a role to play in informing our community about, you know, what the broadcasters and agencies were expecting, what the protocols can and should not be, and on and on. So we did a number of things. A, we started with these webinars that were extremely popular because at the beginning, everyone was like, okay, is CBC going to commission anything? Is, is, is Crave? Is, you know, are the agencies like, you know, how are they going to deal with the fact that production has had to stop in many cases? So we felt it was really important to inform our community on that level. We also, you know, as time went on, also felt that protocols, you know, what, what do we do on a set? What's, you know, responsible, what's legal? And aside from doing webinars, we got some funding from the National Film Board and a few other agencies to actually create, um, you know, an informative guide, online guide to production during COVID. And the other thing we felt very strongly about is sharing information from people who were dealing with production, post-production development, you know, in Canada and abroad and the ethics of all of this. So we felt we had a tremendous service. There was a service we absolutely needed to provide to our members. And this went on, we created a COVID committee, which was fantastic. There were about 10, you know, doc members from across the country, including Young Chang and, uh, some really wonderful people who, you know, every, we met once a week, we created programs with the Doc Institute, which is, you know, the Ontario chapter of, of Doc has this, you know, programming arm to really just keep on, keep the dialogue open. And, you know, it, it's really not that things were, and, and in fact, I'm, you know, I'm also on the boards, the interim board of the, of the Documentary Producers Alliance, and we did some similar things inspired by Doc too, to again, create a place where people can ask questions and, and, and you know, see how others are dealing with, with COVID. So I, I feel that it's not so much that we had bigger solutions, it's we were very proactive in trying to understand the impact of this as the pandemic, you know, continued for, you know, almost a year and a half. And I think our, you know, we did all kinds of seminars. We did one on, you know, just gave people a space to talk about their own anxiety, you know, because I think the psychological impact of the pandemic as on documentary filmmakers was really profound as well. And, you know, we, we did one on insurance because like, like in the US, it's been very difficult to deal with issues related to insurance in the pandemic. And, you know, what does it mean to be responsible and, 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 and caring when, and, you know, care is so much a part of, of how we should treat each other during this, this ongoing crisis. 
you know, the only thing I would say in Canada is, you know, because again, a lot of our, all of our production or a lot of it is government funded, you know, we did receive extra funding from some of our agencies, you know, based on, you know, our previous slates with them to help us get through this difficult time. Right, right. Um, so, I mean, it really sounds like you, um, you all made a, a concrete effort to get perspectives from like all, all sides. So the, the, you know, the, the documentary bodies and then the, the filmmakers. Absolutely. And, and then, yeah. Um, and, and you basically, you listened and acted upon those, those various perspectives because, um, and I think it speaks to, I'm going to maybe get a little philosophical here, just um, the, um, the, what I call collectivism versus like individualism. Because, you know, uh, I think in the U.S. we have just this, this hyper, hyper workshop of the individual and that even extends not just to people but also to organizations. And what I found was that a lot of or individual organizations, they may work with two or three or, or were willing to work with two or three other organizations, but they wanted to like have the answers. And, and I found that a bit frustrating because this was unprecedented. Like none of us have worked in a documentary space during a worldwide pandemic, you know? <laughs> and what I found like most effective was something that I did where I, where I, where I worked was we did a series of, of listening sessions, what we call listening sessions with, um, the film, with filmmakers who were supported by the, our programs, either fiscal sponsorship or, or grantees or like, or Docu Club alum, and where people could really talk about, first of all, talk about the issues they were dealing with, but also how they were, um, how they were coming up with solutions. So people who still wanted to continue to shoot were, were trying to figure out how to shoot remotely, like, and sharing like that, those concrete informations, like what you could send to, what type of equipment was easy to send to a protagonist to like, to um to do you know interviews um how to record interviews over skype if filmmakers wanted to continue in in that way um and um those for me i felt like were more most useful for the filmmakers but the biggest the biggest one of the biggest issues particularly for because like so many films were premiering at the time or getting ready to premiere was around the issues of, of festivals and premiere status. And the um, Seed and Spark, um, for those of you who don't know, they're a, um, a crowdfunding resource for specific film, filmmakers. They actually put together this film festival pledge where, and, it, and the things they were asked, they, were, they wanted in the pledge were not asking, um, were not extraneous in any way, but basically asking um, film, asking film festivals um, to be cognizant of what was happening with the pandemic and, you know, and not being, um, and, and also it was a, they were trying to have a conversation with distributors. So if a filmmaker does distribute, if their, if their film is in a streaming in a festival, like online, that that doesn't count toward, that doesn't count against them as regards to like future distribution deals. Um, they were also asking for leniency on round premiere status. And it was actually only for a limited time. So like from 2020 to the end of 2021. 
And there were a lot of festivals that signed on to that. And like people will provide a link to that on the page so you can see which festivals sign up to for our listeners. But a lot of prominent film festivals did not. And it would have, um, and I thought that was really interesting because, um, and a little like off-putting off because like even for the short window of, for the short window, this 2020 to 2021 window and these unprecedented times, it was like this this need to kind of hold on, still very much hold on to the old way of, of doing things. Well, the thing, the world has changed and it'll be really interesting. You know, I think that fe even festivals have realized, you know, it's not so bad to be virtual because, you know, audiences from across the country, the US or Canada can buy tickets to see films. And, you know, it's, it's not such a bad thing. Yeah, and and PBS was like one of the few distributors that was was actually uh what well, was actually reasonable. So they they were allowing films that they had already had deals with um, to stream at festivals, but they had you no know, restrictions from like it needs to be geoblocked for the state, or you can't sell um, more tickets than you would sell like an actual theater. You know, and and those are those are reasonable requests, but but very there were there were one of the few out there. And I, I just wanted to ask, um, just with the, because a lot of the films in Canada are government funded, did you come up against some of the thing, other things with like some of those similar things with Canadian festivals, like with hot dogs or, or TIFF, like, or was there more leniency in, in that regard? Well, you know, last year, hot dogs, the first year, they were geo-blocked to the province of Ontario. So only people living primarily in Toronto could see the films. Right. So mm -hmm. even though I had an industry pass, right. I could I, only see what was in the doc shop. Yeah, I, re I remember that, yes. But this year they decided to be it, for it to be pan-Canadian. And I think they saw the advantage of that, that, you know, again, Hot Dogs is a very strong brand and they had people across the country who bought tickets to see the films. And, you know, they, they returned box office to filmmakers you know, I had two films at Hot Dogs. I got box office on both of them. Um, you know, percentage, which is, I think you split it with Hot Dogs after an admin fee. Is that the way it's always been? They've is never that... paid filmmakers before. That's the wow. other interesting thing. So, but they paid with the, with the, the, the but, streaming of the pandemic. Okay. Yep. Yep. So that's a game changer for sure. But at the same time, like if you speak, I'm on the board of Hot Dogs as well. It was a financially a very good year for the festival mm -hmm. even though it was it was virtual because yeah yeah and but also the the virtual aspect also brings up the, the question of accessibility as well because you know not everybody can get themselves to a theater for whatever reason you know um and and it looks like i mean this is like potential for like additional revenue from people who um, who may not be able to like navigate, you know, physical spaces like other folks. So, and this is what I wonder, like, as we are beginning to, well, I don't know, we're beginning to get back to normal, but uh, I'm hoping that we will be able to film, film festivals, particularly some of these more prominent, prominent ones will um, adopt, maybe consider holding on to like these hybrid models. I, I agree they're going to. Like when I look at TIFF, you know, all of their industry stuff is still online for this coming fall. 
like I just got a, a notification and yeah, that's what they're doing. They're doing okay, yeah. And I'm I'm hoping like as we as we move out out of the pandemic, you know, that will that will stay. But I've also this is something I've I've found really interesting, not only about Canadian festivals, but also festivals I've attended in Europe and on um, in Asia as well. And this is a question not only around like accessibility for people with disabilities, but around as um, language. Because I think doesn't hot docs have a mandate that everything has to be um, subtitled? Am I? Yes, of course. Yeah, subtitle. Whereas that not, is that necessarily a, a mandate here in the U.S. And then when you go to other countries, um, you know things are uh, subtitled. Or also when you're going to um, Q and A's. Um, like I've been to the Yellow Documentary Film Festival and Doc Leipzig. A lot of Doc Leipzig stuff is in English, but um, at the Yellow Documentary Film Festival in the Czech Republic, um, for Q and A's, you can actually get a, a headset where they're actually Absolutely. doing simultaneous translation. I mean, that was the way it was in Korea as well. I would like that some of those things to be adopted here in in the United States you now, because we're um, unfortunately we're like proudly monolingual. <laughs> <laughs> but how many, how many languages you do, do you speak? Very well, English and French. Very well, English and French. Okay, okay. And then being in Montreal, yeah. So being, were, were you raised in Montreal? Yes, I was. Okay, born and raised there. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, so I want to ask you about your latest project. Well, I don't know it's your latest project, but it's the latest project I know about. I was, had the pleasure of seeing the rough cut. The gig is up. Yes, so the gig is up is about the gig economy. And we a lot of our film is shot in the United States and really told from the point of view of workers. And um, we had our world premiere at CPH, then we went to Hot Dogs, we were at the Boston International Film Festival, Melbourne, Dock Edge, and coming up soon, Edinburgh. And the film will be released by Gravitas in the US on October the 8th. Okay, great, great. So where will people be able to see that? So there will be, um, you know, it'll be limited theatrical and also, you know, iTunes and all the other platforms at the same time. And so, you know, the campaign will start early fall and hopefully we'll get a lot of people to see the film. It's an incredibly relevant film, especially what we've gone through in the last year and really listening to and hearing the voices of these workers is essential. I distinctly remember like at the time where we had that, um, I think you sent a bunch of us the film and then we had that that group conversation about about the, the rough cut or the fine cut. But at the time here in California, that I think it was right, was it around the election or before the election? But anyway, there was an initiative on the ballot. Okay, exactly, so, Prop, Prop 22, yes. Prop 22. So essentially the year before or a couple of years before, there have been this uh, this proposition to make uh, gig workers who work a certain number of hours like listed as like full-time employees with benefits. But then like the Ubers and the Lyfts, they put a lot of money in advertising into, um, um, into another proposition that essentially went against that. And um, it basically that was, that law was, was gutted. Um, but like, at the time when I saw the film, it was like we were, this was still ongoing and it had not been decided yet. Uh, I wanted to ask you specifically about what are some of the impact campaigns you're having around the film? Because you know, early on in the pandemic, you know, there was worldwide, there was a celebration of essential workers and like those who, people who worked in the gig economy were 
put into that category as well, but now it's going kind of quiet. So I wanted to ask about your, your impact campaign around um, the gig economy, particularly like how it pertains to um, su getting support for these workers. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're just starting that and I'm hoping to bring an impact producer on board in the next few weeks. And the idea is to, you know, collaborate with groups that represent workers, you know, and not necessarily unions. You know, there's many groups in the United States, local and national um, gig workers rising who really represent the voices of, of these workers and really get them to be at the forefront of the conversation about what they're facing. So, you know, you know, screenings with representatives, screenings and collaborations with associations, including some unions probably, um, as we roll the film out in the United States are, are key, is key to getting this, you know, issue discussed, op-ed pieces, hopefully, um, podcasts, you name it. Yeah, I can see a podcast. Uh, me have, too. Have you thought about doing that? Like, I, I was say, I, I was thinking like a podcast with like gig workers of different like different stripes, you know, who work in different like Uber drivers or even um, like I I had a past career as a licensed massage therapist, and at one point I was like working for like a couple apps, you know, I was like married to my phone. Yes, know, well, that's waiting it. for so that call. Yes, <laughs> the anxiety of that. Yeah, the anxiety of that. But what are some of the issues that your film addresses? I mean, obviously, we like what are some of the specific issues around like the gig economy that the film addresses? Well, you know, having you know the biggest issue, of course, is having you know, for lack of a better word, a, a labor code that protects the workers. I mean, that's essential for sure. And you know, other issues like you know, normally in a normal work situation, you have an employee and a boss, and the bo there's a real protocol for evaluating the work of an employee and with these apps it's you know aside from algorithms that determine things it's also the whole rating system you know I, I know someone who's a gig worker who you know someone wrote him a bad review and it nearly tanked his whole work life I actually had that happen to me um because uh, 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 you know sometimes when you're doing um, massage uh, men can be inappropriate and I I was working on this client and he kept shutting me down and he gave me a bad review. Um, and luckily um, they were able to take it off because I explained what happened, you know? So I, I did have some power in, in that, you know, but a lot of times, you know, um, those reviews are essentially become the law. They become, they become your badge and you can't do anything with them. All right, so um, we are near the end of our time. So we always like to give our guests the last word. So um, whatever you wanna say. I don't know, like I don't wanna pitch more of my own projects. I think you've heard enough about them. I haven't, you know, I, I don't want to take up anyone's time with that. I just wanna say that I think that uh, the work of a producer in documentary is a creative role. It's a filmmaker role. And I think that, it's really important that our industry recognizes this work. Um, we are multi-talented people in the sense that we have to deal with everything from numbers to marketing a film, um, to making some important creative decisions with the directors. And um, 
I think it's one of the most interesting jobs in the world. I think we have the opportunity. Every project brings new joys and new challenges. Every creative collaboration brings something unique and special to not just to the screen, but to our own lives personally and professionally. And um, I just encourage everyone to support and respect this work because it, it, it's, you know, producers are filmmakers and we are very much an important part of the ecosystem. And, you know, as someone who's been doing this for, wow, you know, almost 30 years, I have to say that it's still a joy for me, not that it's not without its challenges, but I really salute the men and women who have taken on this role in documentary filmmaking. Hats off. What an incredible conversation. And thanks so much to Ina for going into so much detail on co-productions. Ina dropped so much wisdom, but mainly to trust your intuition when deciding the projects you take on and those with whom you want to take on the journey with you. And in conversations on sustainability in the field, it can only benefit us all if experienced women filmmakers like Anna and so many others are showcased, particularly filmmakers who are not only willing to share their stories of success, but who are willing to acknowledge the lessons they've learned from making mistakes. Centering people like Anna, who give specifics on how to navigate the documentary field, can also do so much to improve transparency. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Over the next few weeks, we'll showcase a short episode on our new partnership with Neo Tarot's podcast, Seacast. And we'll follow that with our conversation with Blackfeet sister and brother team, Ivy and Ivan McDonald visit our website at whatsupdocs.com. That's whatsupdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Tongva and the Shumash on which this podcast is recorded.